I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to begin with a question, an intriguing question. Can you truly be deceived by something while at the same time know that you are deceived? Can you be truly deceived by something and at the same time know that you are deceived? Think about that question. Don't answer it too quickly. You might deceive yourself. There are a number of things that can deceive us, right? People can deceive us in relationships, in business partnerships. People can lie. They can say one thing and then do another. Our emotions can deceive us. We may feel this way about this person or this situation, and then something completely different happens. We can be left saying, wow, I never saw that coming, or I really felt like things were going to work out differently. Even our own motives can deceive us. And we get some insight from this from perhaps the infamous verse of Jeremiah 17:9 that says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In our study today, we're going to witness the, the blinding and deceiving effect of unbelief. And the title is in your bulletin. It says this, No Sign for the Blind. And this title will make more sense once we read our passage. So let's just go ahead and start by doing that. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 13 will be our focus, and it says this. The Pharisees, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. We have spent the last 15 months going through the gospel of Mark. And in many ways, Mark's record of the life and ministry of Jesus reaches a climax in Mark chapter 8. And if we look at our broader context, it's going to help us understand and, and fully appreciate this. There's a contrast between what I would describe two realities, the great confession and the great depression. The great confession comes in Mark 8.29 when the apostle Peter, who was serving as the spokesman of the twelve, declares that Jesus is indeed the Christ. This is a climactic moment because it, it lets us know that they see him for who he is. He is the Messiah. And this was Peter functioning in a role as a spokesman for the twelve. After the great confession, Jesus is going to decidedly be on his way to Jerusalem. And as a result, he's going to make this transition. He's going to start teaching the masses, the crowds, less and less. And he's going to start focusing more and more on the disciples with concentrated time, preparing them for his death, his resurrection, and extreme persecution that's soon going to be headed their way. On the other side of the context is the Great Depression, and by this, I mean the resilient unbelief of the scribes and Pharisees who stand opposed against Jesus. They stand against him and, and do not believe that he is the Messiah. Their hearts are only growing colder and harder in opposition. They are both deaf 
and blind to who Jesus is. And Mark, and the Gospel of Mark, John Mark is purposed in revealing this by bookending two miracles on each side of the passage that we're going to study today. You'll recall at the end of Mark 7, Jesus did what? He healed a deaf man. Okay? And then on the other side of the passage that we'll study today, starting in Mark 8.22, Jesus is going to heal a blind man. And both of these miracles reflect the spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness present in the hearts of the unbelieving. And this is why Jesus is going to warn the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. He does so in verse 15. And he'll also ask the question that he does in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? The Pharisees are staunchly committed to their unbelief. And our passage today is going to help us see this even more clearly. The propositions in your outline, two questions focused on the sin of unbelief so that you see the foolishness of seeking a sign while spiritually blind. It's not until I just said that out loud that I realized that it rhymes too. So that's just, you know, my old school days coming out. The, the, the DJ days, okay. I opted to take an interrogative approach to the outline because we want to answer these two questions together and this is going to give us a, a fuller sense of what our passage is about. The first question is this. Do you see the foolishness of the blind sign seekers. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, in our English translation, this doesn't look like a very antagonistic verse. But when you look at it through the lens of the Greek, and this is what I want to share, there are actually four actions which serve as subpoints in your outline under the first point that can help us see the foolishness of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's right, the Sadducees. Oh, wait, we didn't read that in there. Where is that? Well, in the parallel account in Matthew 16, 1, it shares that Sadducees were also present with the Pharisees. Mark has yet to mention them. And he, he's going to in Mark chapter 12. Their inclusion with the Pharisees is no small matter because these two Jewish parties typically kept their distance from each other. The Sadducees are mentioned only 14 times in the New Testament, while the Pharisees are mentioned 86 times, nearly eight times more. Both groups are recognized by Christ as he warns his disciples to be aware of the leaven of both the Sadducees and Pharisees. Jesus actually does this three consecutive times in Matthew 16, in verse 6, then in verse 11, and again in verse 12. Both parties were religious. Both parties self-righteous in the Lord's eyes. Both parties held to teaching that either compromised the law or overstepped the boundaries of other Old Testament writings. And we've seen examples of this as it relates to the Pharisees and the writings of the Mishnah and the Talmud. But what about the Sadducees? The primary false teaching that the Sadducees clung to was that there was no resurrection. And perhaps you've heard that well-known and long-standing joke that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and that is why they were sad, you see. 
Okay. Right? That's Badoosh. There's another one that's been around the, the, the ministry for a long time. <laughs> Victoria told me last night, she was like, I've never heard that. So we were laughing about that. Well, their false teaching went far beyond this. And Josephus and other historians record additional heresies of the Sadducees, such as the Sadducees, in contrast to the Pharisees, gave no place to the overruling providence of God, but emphasized that all that happens to us in the, is the result of good or evil that we do. And we saw the significance last week's sermon, right, of providence and how important and how nothing happens by chance. This, this universe isn't handed over by chance, but that God's providence, God's ways are intimately connected with everything that transpires. They believe falsely. The Sadducees also taught that souls die with the bodies. Thus, no resurrection, no afterlife. James Edwards' research reveals that, quote, early Christian writers, Hippolytus, Origen and Jerome said that the Sadducees accepted only the Pentateuch and not the other Old Testament books. It would seem, however, that they were not opposed to other Old Testament books as a whole, though it is doubtful whether they accepted books such as Daniel with its clear statement of the resurrection of the dead, but rather that they opposed the legal regulations introduced by the Pharisees and were saying that only the Old Testament law should be considered mandatory. In this, as in their stand against belief in angels and in life after death, they appear to have regarded the Pharisees as innovators and themselves as conservatives. So this is just, they're whacked, right? They they are spiritually goofy. They're, they're, They're out of it. They don't see the truth, and they view the Pharisees as these innovators who are, are teaching false things. And so for these two groups to come together, are you tracking with me now? What's the, the common denominator in it all? They have a common enemy. They're united in their unbelief. And so they came out and they're confronting Jesus together. They now shared a common enemy who was growing in popularity, who was exposing their pride, false teaching, and unbiblical traditions. And this was an aggressive action on their part, as if in a military rank. In the past, we've seen the scribes and the Pharisees observe Jesus and the disciples from afar, right? We've seen examples of this. But this is them going and stepping right into his path and and stepping right into to confront him face to face. We have the luxury of knowing who Jesus is, don't we? We truly do. And this can't possibly end well. The last person in the universe that you want to go toe-to-toe with is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? This, we know this is not going to end well. And this is the nature of unbelief and deception. This is what it leads to. And for the record, Jesus Christ is undefeated. Okay? We can, we can talk, you know, Muhammad Ali can can boast all he wants, but the Lord Jesus Christ has stood the test of time. No one has ever been able to, to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ in this world that we live in who, who thinks that somehow Jesus was defeated when he went to the cross and that he suffered and died and was nailed to it and was killed. They think what? That, oh, Jesus lost that battle. When we know as Christians who aren't deceived that that was his greatest victory, Right? He pronounced victory over death. 
If anything, it would have been a defeat if something was successful in hindering him from going to the cross. So not only do they confront Christ, but verse 11 continues and reveals that they were arguing with Christ. And this word can be translated to dispute, to debate, or to question. But in the given context, to argue is the best translation. In the Greek, it's supported grammatically by two participles that describe how they were arguing. And I put those in your outline as as well. First, by seeking a sign and then by tempting him. It's going to help us to understand both. First, seeking a sign. Look again at the middle of verse 11. It says that they were seeking a sign from heaven. And the word sign here can literally be rendered an attesting miracle. In fact, in your margin or in your cross-reference, you might even see it listed as an attesting miracle. When we read this verse, it indicates that they wanted to see a sign attesting that he was from heaven. They wanted a divine sign. They wanted a supernatural sign. So far, what he had done, the miracles that Jesus had performed, weren't miraculous enough from their vantage point. Jesus, by this time, had healed the sick, raised the dead, delivered people from the bondage of demon possession, walked on water, calmed stormy seas, twice miraculously multiplied bread and fish to feed 40 to 50,000 people combined. That's a pretty good resume of miracles, don't you think? Now, now granted, in fairness to them, they weren't present for all those miracles in our study. We even know that. But there were countless other miracles that were performed according to the Gospel of John that if they were all written down, it would be impossible for the books of the world to contain them. They saw enough. So what were the scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees possibly looking for? What were they looking for? Can I tell you? A mistake. A mistake. They're looking for Jesus to stumble. They they want to be able to accuse him of being a false prophet. And you must understand that there are no good intentions here. And some theologians have speculated that they were looking for this grander miracle somehow. That maybe if Jesus could be like Joshua in Joshua 10 and make the sun stand still, this would be the great miracle they were looking for. Or if, like Elijah in 1 Kings 17, that if he could pray that it would not rain for three and a half years, this would validate that he's the Messiah. Or Elijah in the following chapter, 1 Kings 18, that he would call down fire from heaven. It's not the case. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And Mark provides evidence of this when verse 11 finishes with the second way that they're arguing with Jesus by tempting him. Translating to test or testing him at the end of verse 11. The last time Mark used this word, it was in Mark 1.13. And it was connected to you-know-who, who was tempting the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was it? Satan. A connection to Satan. And Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Even Satan trying to get him to stumble. And here the Pharisees and scribes are operating much like agents of Satan, trying to get Jesus to stumble 
as well. And this helps us, it helps us big time to understand why beyond this point in Mark's gospel and beyond in the parallel account in Matthew 16, why Jesus brings indictments of judgment against the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Jesus even describes them as basically children of Satan, referring to them, referring to their father, Satan as their father in John 8. Their unbelief and opposition to Christ is clearly defined. And this also sets us up to answer the second question in our outline. We're considering two questions focused on the sin of unbelief so that you and I see the foolishness of seeking a sign when spiritually blind. We've seen the foolishness of the blind sign seekers when they confronted Jesus and argued with him. Now let's shift gears and zero in on the second question. Do you see the significance of our Savior's response? Look at the beginning of verse 12. And it all starts here with our Savior's sigh. It reads, sighing deeply in his spirit. Stop here for a moment. It'd be very unfortunate if we were to look past this emotional response from the Lord. Because in many ways, his nonverbal language is every bit as strong as the verbal response that he's going to share. There's actually three responses. It's an emotional response. Then we're going to see a verbal response. And then we're going to see a physical response when he departs at the end. But we don't want to miss this emotional response. In the original Greek, this reads that Jesus groaned in his spirit. This is a groaning sigh. And it's an extremely rare Greek word that's only used here, by the way, in the New Testament. And James Edwards adds that it was used, quote, fewer than 30 times in all of Greek literature. A survey of its uses reveals that it's not an expression of anger or indignation so much as of dismay or despair. It's used to describe describe persons who find themselves in situations where they are pushed to the limits of, faith, of faithfulness, end quote. Many in the room might recall maybe growing up with your parents or guardians if you push their buttons just a little too far, right? And, and your rebellion pushed them what would happen Am I alone in that? Or was I the only kid that um, made my parents respond this way? And I, I could tell, and you could tell by their nonverbal response that their groaning sigh meant that you were in real trouble. Or maybe your spouse, friend, or coworker has crossed the line by saying something or doing something that tested the boundaries of your restraint and self-control. And we want to distinguish here between a sigh versus the groaning sigh. We all know what a sigh is. Right? We get that, that sigh. The groaning sigh. Mm. A little different, right? Actually, very, very different. And this is exactly what's happening here with our Savior's sigh in this moment. And though it was impossible for Jesus to sin, their hard-heartedness tested Jesus' human boundaries of patience to the point of being dismayed with them. And there's a principle here for us. And you know God cannot be tempted by evil. We know that, James 1.13, right? But 
the, the, the weight in Jesus' humanity, he still felt that. Even when he was out in the wilderness being tempted in Matthew 4, he's being led by the Spirit, right? He's a great high priest, Hebrews 4.13, who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, right? He knows that gravity, that weight of being tempted. And we can draw upon a principle here when someone close to us or even unbelievers push our limits. We have a savior who is wrong regularly and tempted in his humanity. We have the same indwelling Holy Spirit as a believer to guide us and to appeal to, right? That same power resides within us. When your spouse says or does something blatantly hurtful, when your children openly rebel, in their unregenerate flesh. When your boss or your coworker tempts you by making you look bad or doesn't give you credit in the workplace, right? And wants to make you look bad in front of other people. Whatever the case might be, look to our Savior's sigh here. Draw upon him for strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 12 continues. After our Savior's sigh, we see our Savior's rhetorical question and answer when Jesus says, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. As we consider the Lord's verbal response to their unbelief, I believe it reflects a few dynamics that are worthy of our consideration. First, their external focus on outside matters, and I'm referring to the Pharisees. Second, their lack of understanding into the heart of God. And third, their spiritual blindness. Allow me to explain. First, their focus on external matters. Were the Pharisees known for promoting an external righteousness and fastidiously holding to legalism? Were they, were they known for that? We've learned that, right? Of course they were. So it shouldn't surprise us that they would come to Jesus seeking external signs, to them, to them, even their lives, it was all about the external evidence. And so when they came to evaluate the Messiah, it shouldn't surprise us, right? It really shouldn't surprise us that they were looking for something that he could do on the outside. It wasn't about the heart of the man. It wasn't about the compassion of God. It wasn't about the kindness. What can you do to convince us that you're the Messiah, and even the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to capture this reality that described them in 1 Corinthians 1.22 when he recorded, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, end quote. And he does that right before Paul contrasts their foolishness and unbelief with the wisdom of God. Second, their lack of understanding into the heart of God. I also believe that Jesus was dismayed with them and responded this way because they didn't understand and they dismissed God's heart and compassion for people. They didn't understand what God required. They didn't understand God's plan. And it was a plan that was spelled out clearly in the Old Testament scriptures. Passages like Hosea 6.6 that say, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. A word can be mercy. Loyalty, it's a said, rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. 
Micah 6, 7 and 8, that says, Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? In 10,000 rivers of oil? This, this is staggering right here. Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And you want to know what? They didn't walk humbly. They were proud. They stuck their, their, their chests out in self-righteousness. They didn't have faith. They didn't cling to the righteousness that was God and live through that lens. They live through the lens of their own righteousness. And even the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, which was to capture their hearts and to motivate them in all that they did, proved that they didn't understand God. And just listen to these verses, and I know they're familiar, but just listen to the connection to the heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And their actions weren't driven by love. They were driven by legalism. And this is something that, again, we've, we've seen repeatedly in previous studies. It wasn't a love for God and people. They weren't fueled by genuine faith that produces and displays God's compassion, God's kindness, God's mercy, God's love for the lost. It was a false faith driven by duty and obligation and self-promotion, completely divorced of God's love. Their faith wasn't, it wasn't real. And sure, it was shrouded in religious activity, but it wasn't grounded in God. And Jesus knew that they couldn't see this because they were spiritually blind, which leads to the third dynamic drawn out in his response, their spiritual blindness. If they couldn't see all these other, scene, all these other things that were taking place, how in the world could an additional sign help them? You know, I'm, very, I'm sensitive to people who suffer physically from being blind. I just want to qualify that. Even be before making an illustration. Anyone that has been born blind that has never had the, 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 the gift of sight, right? Painful to think about, right? But God, even in his mercy, finds ways to bless such a person, right? Shows the power of God. But think about this. Is it possible for a person who is physically blind to see the physical signs in this world? They cannot. They, they, they will not help them. In fact, you can take all of the signs collectively, and if that person is blind, it doesn't matter how many you put physically in front of them. They will never be able to see them. And the same is true that a spiritual sign cannot help someone who is spiritually blind. It just, it doesn't work. It can't work. 
This is so true in the spiritual sense. And Jesus performed countless miracles. There are numerous signs pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. Big, bright, neon, flashing signs showing and pointing that he is the Messiah. These Old Testament scriptures, all the messianic prophecies, all the miracles, all these things flashing. But they can't see him. They can't see him due to their spiritual blindness. And thus we get the Lord's answer to his rhetorical question and his answer and the sermon title. No sign for the blind. And it's at this point where we need to make an important spiritual distinction between temporal blindness and terminal blindness. Okay, I didn't put those in your outline, but those are the, the two T words I would have you remember. Temporal blindness or terminal blindness. Due to sin, everyone is born blind spiritually. In an unredeemed, unregenerate state, we are absolutely in spiritual darkness. This is a reflection of um, total and absolute depravity. Not only are we blind due to our corrupt and inherited sin nature, but 2 Corinthians 4.4 shares that the God of this world, who is Satan, right? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Spiritually speaking, it's a double blindfold, right? Just in case that somehow you thought you might be able to see on your own, which isn't possible. Satan has blinded everyone. Our sin as well as Satan prevent us from being able to see any spiritual light unless. Unless God miraculously intervenes. And God does, right? Amen? God can and does intervene, giving faith to those whom he sovereignly chooses to have spiritual eyes to see. What does this mean? It means that there are those on this planet who will suffer only from temporary or temporal spiritual blindness because a gracious God in a spirit of mercy, in a spirit of compassion, he steps in to save us from our desperate condition when he allowed the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts. And we celebrate this reality as a church family, don't we? We celebrate this theology 2 Corinthians 4, 6 even affirms it by saying, For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And we sing about the praise. We sing about Christ being unveiled in our lives, in our, in our thinking. Yet there's another sobering distinction that needs to be shared, and that is terminal blindness. Terminal here would mean without end. And this refers to spiritual blindness that will never end. It is a sad and desperate reality that leads an unrepentant soul to spend an eternity without God in damnation. And it's the very reason why Jesus in Matthew's account uh, at least three different times makes reference to Damnation, uh, referring to it as outer darkness. This is the saddest of all conditions. 
and is reflected on this side of the cross by those who live in utter defiance of Jesus Christ and the gospel, which in our account today reflects the unbelieving hearts of the Sadducees and Pharisees committed to their sin of unbelief. It was terminal blindness. Now, does this mean that no Pharisees, Sadducees, that, that none of them were saved? We know that's not true, right? right? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the Apostle Paul, right? Perhaps most noted. What it does mean is that our evangelism can be better understood when we see people have different responses to the gospel. And our job is to point them to the signs. They cannot see. So in the same way that a blind person relies on other people who can see to help them, that is how we function in this world of spiritual darkness. We point people to the signs. And God uses that in conjunction with his will. Do we know if he's going to turn the sign on? Give them sight? Do we know? We don't know. We don't know. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter. God's the judge. God's the one who's going to do that work. Our responsibility is to walk in faithfulness and infidelity to that task and to point them to the signs. But, but does God in a spirit of grace allow some to come? That's exactly when somebody witnessed us. That's how it works. That's how it works. We point the spiritually blind to spiritual signs, praying and trusting that the Lord is going to give them spiritual eyes to see. That is our task. In time, God will reveal whether they are temporarily or terminally blind as we trust God, right? He will. Now, let me confirm something that's important about our passage. It is true that the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus was speaking to, in this instance, it appears that many are terminally blind. Right? People have noted that. And this is why twice Jesus makes a reference to verse 12 to this generation, which in the Greek also means people living in the same time. Okay? No additional signs were going to be given because this generation had access to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in person. Imagine this. If you were a person living during the time of Christ, that you got to see him, that you were healed by him, you saw his miracles, you saw and listened to his words, his, his preaching and his teaching, his explanation of, of the gospel of the kingdom. You saw his fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And then what? That you would still reject him. That's what's taking place. And if you can still reject him after all this, after this generation has been given, okay, not our generation, this generation that Jesus is referring to after the full disclosure and the God of heaven coming down to earth and you can still reject him, you are in trouble. And these Pharisees and Sadducees weren't seekers. They were suppressors. And this is why Jesus would eventually write all the woes and scathing judgments to the scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Eight woes. 
Now, as it relates to us sharing the gospel, we don't know who is terminally blind. And God knows. And again, it's our calling as believers to call out those living in spiritual darkness. J.C. Ryle wrote this conclusion on this passage. Grief over the sins of others is one leading evidence of true grace. The man who is really converted will always regard the unconverted with pity and concern. This was the mind of David who said, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved. Psalm 119, 158. This was the mind of the godly in the days of Ezekiel. Quote, they sighed and cried for the abominations done in the land. Ezekiel 9.4. This was the mind of Lot. Quote, he vexed his righteous soul with the unlawful deeds of those around him. 2 Peter 2.8. This was the mind of Paul. I have great heaviness and continual, so- continual sorrow for my brethren. Brethren, Romans 9.2. In all these cases, we see something of the mind of Christ. As the great head feels, so feel the members of the body. They all grieve when they see sin. Let us leave the passage with solemn self-inquiry. Do we know anything of likeness to Christ and fellow feeling with him? Do we feel hurt and pained and sorrowful when we see men continuing in sin and unbelief? Do we feel grieved and concerned about the state of the unconverted? These are heart-searching questions and demand serious consideration. There are few surer marks of an unconverted heart than carelessness and indifference about the souls of others. Very sobering and powerful charge for a man who spent his life, spent his life living for Christ in the sake of the gospel And then you'll notice in our passage how it ends with our Savior's departure. Even the Lord Jesus Christ didn't stick around to debate those who committed to defy him. And this is the final takeaway from our Savior's departure. Verse 13, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Jesus was off to minister to those whom God was calling to himself. And may we be committed to following in his footsteps as we continue to pursue the lost and to make disciples. You know, at the beginning of the service, I started with the question, can you truly be deceived by something while at the same time know that you are deceived? The answer to that question is no. When a person is deceived, they cannot know it. Otherwise, they would, what? They'd no longer be deceived. As believers, it is our hope always to be rescued from deception. And though we have spiritual eyes to see. We do, right? It's been unveiled as a result of the ongoing war with sin that still exists in our lives. We are not going to ever be spiritually blind again, but we can suffer from blind spots. Can we not? We can suffer from blind spots. And so God in his, his mercy and grace has even provided discipleship and, and close relationships so that we can get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we can use our spiritual eyes to help, help someone else see maybe an area that they cannot see. That I can look in your life and say, sister, brother, I, I see this. How are you guys doing? How, can you, oh, I'm so glad you asked. Or you've had this, those in care group, you've had this experience. Somebody bringing to light something that you just didn't see wow, I had no idea that, I I just didn't see it. Let us be encouraged by this reality 
as well as we wrap up this passage. Thanks for the additional couple of minutes. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow our heads praising you for um, the reality that you've allowed us to see, see that the, the, the foolishness of, of the, the scribes and Pharisees and every person that is redeemed and born again in this room, we know better than to point our fingers at them and to um, sigh groaningly saying, oh, I can't believe those guys. When we know that if it wasn't for your grace, if it wasn't in your goodness, that we could very easily have been one of them. Very easily. And, and, and to some degree, some of us were before the light of the gospel shone into our hearts. And you revealed your holiness. You revealed our sinfulness. And you helped us to see that there was no righteousness that we could ever earn or merit on our own, that we needed to collapse on Christ, that we needed to fall on him in utter repentance of our unbelief and trust completely in him. And in doing so, that you allowed our hearts to be born again. You allowed us to live with new purpose. You've given us spiritual eyes to see. You've given us the ability to, to be guided and directed by your love and your scriptures and the mirror of your word that helps us to see how we need to grow and how you're growing us. Thank you, Lord, for your year of faithfulness to our care group ministry. And I pray that you wouldn't allow us to lose sight of these relationships over the summer and that we would continue to grow in our accountability one to another and we would be willing to even receive um, the counsel of those who might see concerns or areas of weakness or, or perhaps even sin or darkness that's trying to creep into our lives that we can know the rich blessing. I pray, Father, that if there's someone here today that does not know you, that has never trusted completely in Christ, that they would feel the tremendous weight, the tremendous weight of your word and the authority of your gospel and that they would bend the knee to Christ today, that they would cry out to you for forgiveness and you will forgive. That they would cry out to you that they no longer wanna live for themselves, but they wanna live for you. And that this could be a new day. That this could be the day of salvation. We give you thanks and praise for this time. We ask that you'll bless the remainder of our morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.